Welcome to episode two of Podcana. This is a podcast that dives into the headlines, the news, and the strategies around Disney's Lorcana TCG. I'm Flake alongside Brendan Patrick, and we bring you the headlines to discuss this week, Brendan. Yeah, so episode two is going to be digging into the anatomy of a Lorcana card. We're going to be talking about what all those numbers represent, what the key, what keywords we know about, and what we can decipher from all the information. What is that that insidious pip symbol, or lore as we better know it now? But first, we're going to kick it off with this week's Elsa icebreaker. All right, Flake, you asked me the question last week, so I get it this week. And what is your favorite Disney soundtrack? Uh, a whole soundtrack is kind of a, like a big chunk to to chew on because, you know, when it comes to Disney songs, like there's each movie has like its own unique banger every single time. And finding a movie that has like every single song is like, this is the soundtrack, this is the soundtrack. And I know people out there are going to be like, like if I hear uh, "Let It Be" one more time, I might go crazy because I think for the longest time that was uh, that was like the song of I don't know how long ago it was like eight years now or so. That was just the the thing. But I'm I've got a soft spot for Disney's Hercules. Mm. I think that that is like one of the most under the radar, underappreciated Disney movies ever, and they had some really good songs in Disney's Hercules. They did, and I do agree that movie is very underrated. Actually, one of my favorite Lorcana cards right now has a character from that movie. Um, mine is, uh, it's not going to be a soundtrack, but uh, it is a song, so it's its the bare necessities, calling back to my Jungle Book roots there. I also think that Mulan's I'm Gonna Make a Man Out of You is pretty fantastic. It was actually, uh, back when I wrestled in high school, we got to have these walkout songs, and my walkout song was I'm Gonna Make a Man Out of You. Um, so it's got a soft spot in my heart. That question was from Jay Hugs at on Twitter. So if you want to get your question submitted to the Elsa Icebreaker, go ahead and shoot us a comment in the YouTube uh, in YouTube below, or you know, tweet us on Twitter. Whatever you want. What are the um, so Flake? Let's head into the headlines. We got some crazy new information this week. What do you have for us? All right. So I got to speak to Artem at uh, Lorcania.com, a really great website and resource for you guys to go check out. Uh, Artem was at the Nuremberg Toy Fair and got some sweet information, got to actually hold the product in his hand. Brendan, which is really cool. We were talking about it uh, privately. I had a call with him a couple of days ago, and we were just chatting about Everything he spoke, he spoke to people like Ryan Miller, who is the uh, lead designer on Lorcana. And uh, part of it was he showed me a bunch of stuff, but he also said, There's only a little bit of this that you're allowed to talk about. So, what we're going to talk about here is the gift set and what those counters are in the back. So, here's like a picture that is available for you guys. This is a, a little better resolution of what comes in the actual gift set and those counters. Remember last week we were talking about what do those counters represent? This solves a few of those mysteries because those counters are damage counters, Brendan. Yeah, which is to be, and I I talked about what I hope they what what I what I hope they weren't, and that's what they turned out to be. I think that so we see damage counters showing up in the gift set. We see thirty two of them. That's quite a lot. But I think that we can discern from thirty two being in the gift set. If we look at the number of tokens and the things like the starter decks and um, the, pretty much all the other product options, that it's not like 
it doesn't translate one to one in terms of the ratio. So it looks like there's a there's much more of these counters in the gift set than there there is in other products, which makes me think that they're actually supplemental and not core to playing the game. And if counters are not core to playing the game, it makes me think that damage is not persistent throughout the entire game. Because if damage did exist for the entire game, you would absolutely need counters. There's no way you can remember that stuff. But if you look at a game like Magic the Gathering, you know, damage is persistent, but it's persistent through the turn. And I think that counters could you know counters existing uh in this sort of quantity in a single product points more towards damage just existing in a turn or a turn cycle because it's in magic you know you could represent nobody represents counters for like you know your thing is taking three damage we just kind of remember it but the gift set could supplement that by giving you these extra counters you know if the game is made more for kids just make things easier so i genuinely hope that's the way we're we're going in the form of you know damage is persistent through the turn or the turn cycle so both players turns um in one single turn cycle but not the entire game because there's nothing more i dislike more and (laughs) If if you've played board games, you've felt like board games can execute this correctly, but if you've played a card game that tried to take that board game aspect of having a bunch of dice, having a bunch of counters, like it it usually, I mean, it universally feels extremely clunky. I don't think it's been executed correctly yet. Uh, It's, that's the part is like, it's clunky, right? Like there's a lot of things to keep track of and there's no, there's no worse feeling sometimes is like when I'm going to like, let's say a flesh and blood tournament or something else. What annoys me most is when I can't just show up with a deck box of, you know, 60 or 80 cards or whatever it is. I have to show up with a deck box and I has to have, it has to have a tray of like 900 different dice and counters and, and things to keep track of that. And I understand that a lot of this can kind of be done mentally to a degree but if but you need some sort of representation because when your opponent's on the other side of the board you know they want to make sure that at a glance they understand what the board state is and that's what these counters are for and i think that damage being persistent might that leans more towards like what the hearthstone style is Mm -hmm. where you knock into something it's going to maintain the damage unless it's healed it's dealt with we don't know what a lot of the cards are. We don't know, uh, we don't have any clues yet whether the damage is, you know, like to really solve this mystery. Because what if there's a character that comes out, Brendan, that says something along the lines of remove two damage counters from an opponent? Like when you play this card, remove two damage counters from one of your characters. So that could still be, um, pers- you know, turn-based persistent damage. Like you spoke about Hearthstone, right? Hearthstone's a great example of, um, you know, game length persistent damage and i think that you know hearthstone's a good example of that because it can only be executed into digital in a digital game so like there's another game that came out recently called soul forge fusion um it's a reboot of a digital game and the physical version does have persistent damage throughout the entire game and holy cow flake it is you can only be playing like you have five lanes you're actually limited on how much you can play out on a single board but it is still so cumbersome if you find like a deck that is either, you know, increasing life totals of all your all your characters or you're doing damp one damage to everything, like it is a major pain in the butt. So yeah, Hearthstone Hearthstone's an example of it being used correctly because they're they're leveraging the digital format. So really hoping that, you know, for this physical TCG that, that is that is not gonna be the case. And I I still gotta call back that the fact that there's thirty-two of them, thirty-two damage counters, specifically in the gift set, makes me feel like they're just a very, very supplemental product and they're not they're not you know, core to playing the actual game. I feel like um, there's a lot of of elements to card games that can only exist in the digital realm. Things like, you know, like uh, creating a card, Mm -hmm. like discover effects and stuff like that. Random elements that when you have, you know, like deal one random damage to 
one of the a random unit on the board or something like that like that's very hard to to actually reconcile with a dice like you know like do you have a, a d14 if there's 14 things on the board like it's just awkward i think that counters are necessary in order to keep track of things but uh, like you mentioned things just like i think that we're just spoiled to a degree and we get i don't it's, i wouldn't call it laziness on our part but we get it's such a crutch when the computer does everything for you right you know mm-hmm. like that's where that's where you can get sloppy in certain cases but also from a design aspect there's so many it opens so many more avenues when you have a, a random number generator doing a lot of the work for you in certain cases but yeah um some of the uh developers at ravensburger from what i understand um i did look up at some of their backgrounds like i know one of them in particular was a senior designer at wizards of the coast and i, I genuinely don't think that a person with that sort of experience and caliber would make that kind of mistake without perfect perfecting the system really fixing that that core issue that core gameplay loop where it just feels clunky and like you're basically playing a game you're playing a game on top of the game which is just remembering triggers and counters which is probably the least kid-friendly thing you could possibly do as well and we've seen Lorcana already strip out a lot of stuff um in order to be more friendly and make the game more streamlined so i, I really doubt it there's also one thing i want to call um Call to light on the back of this gift set, which is two tracker tokens with themed art. So this is the two little pip tokens. Um, and those pips are, those pips are lore tokens. I mean, it's out by now. I don't know if we're the ones spoiling it, but I've seen it from other people on Twitter. It's lore and that's what you're stacking up. So two lore tokens and you're tracking that. I think that's actually particularly interesting because it, it really, it helps reframe what those, what those symbols might be and what their function is. Cause, uh, I think at this point we're, we're a hundred percent past, um, than potentially being like some sort of resource that you use to cast your cards. I, I don't think that's the case, but I'll leave it for the sort of the main topic because I know we get into it, but I just want to point to it because it is on the back of the gift set and calling them tracker tokens uh, is, uh, it's pretty important. With themed art. Yeah, with don't themed art. With themed art. All right, so the main topic of this uh, episode is uh, going to be the anatomy of a Lorcana card. Um, more cards have kind of been leaked and we've, we've dug into s- some of our theories, but we're really going to get into the crux of it in this one. If you look at some of these cards and you look at, uh, the cards that were released in that box set back at the, the X, the Disney expo, um, like there are some small incongruencies that actually look like errors. Um, and I think that those have been clarified to not be that. So it gives us a lot of sort of insight onto, uh, what these symbols mean and just like how diverse they are, right? Like, especially we'll go into the resource symbol here pretty soon, but like I, I initially thought, I just thought that the, the resource symbol without like the extra flare on it was, was, was a typo, was an issue, was a miscut or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it, it is good to get that reassured because now we can really speculate. Now we can dive deep. Yeah, that's it. That's the fun part, right? And like, as we sort of get closer to release date, uh, to the rules, again, there's a lot of discussion about when Lorcan is going to actually hit us with like an atomic bomb of information, such as like the rules. And they say the spring, and they've been very vague about it. I know that there's uh, there are people in the community out there who are this relentless charge of um, dropping memes about what Lor- Lorcana thinks spring is, and like we're trying to hone it down. But it's a pretty wide window of when we can probably expect things. But it's soon. I mean, it's soon. But let's dig in first, Brendan, with the actual cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll start off with Mickey Mouse here, which is an A-cost. Um, I mean, it's one of the higher-cost cards we've seen. I think that, I mean, obviously, we're looking at the resource here. But if he's looking at Mickey Mouse, I mean, we're trying to evaluate, like, what constitutes an A-cost card, right? So you see a 5-5. Five, five, the stats are actually pretty... 
Those are pretty reasonable stats. They're actually on the low end, but Mickey Mouse is the outlier because there are four lore symbols or four pips on the card. So we call back to this this concept in Flesh and Blood where people sort of broke the algorithm and sort of figured out the the magical number that things try to add up to. And like that, that's usually the case in pretty much every single game. Is like in order to balance cards, they sort of there's a trade-off between cost, power level, and sort of other functional abilities. And with Mickey Mouse, you know, being a five-five, that's a that's a decent body, but doesn't really compare it to other stuff I think we've seen at that at that sort of resource. So these lore counters are accounting for a lot of what makes Mickey Mouse cost so much. So the other important note, thing to note here is, again, that uh, in terms of the design of the card, everything matters. You mentioned that what might have con- been considered a an error or a miscut, as you put it, uh, which I kind of like. There's a frame around the eight, the this kind of uh, hexagon uh, uh, where the cost of the card is. There's this framework. It looks like almost... It's a design around the actual cost of the card that has significance. And you might think, well, it has like what kind of significance? Because all the cards have it. Well, they don't. And that's what's important to note here. And um, let's slam up onto the, uh, onto the, if you're watching us on YouTube, um, well, you can see it. If you're not watching us on YouTube, we invite you to check us out at youtube.com slash at podcast. That's what a card looks like that is not, uh, that does not have it. So Hades does not have that uh, part uh, right there. If you see it, it does not have the the framework around it, the art- artistic uh, framework. Same thing with a card like Dragonfire, which is a, an ability or an action card. But ultimately, the first thing that you think of is it's just part of the design. It's just part of what the artwork of the card looks like, but there's more to it. And I think that that's an important factor that we need to to make sure people are aware of. Also important to note that Hades also has Floodborne. Like, if you look at the timeline there, it's also black, right? It's not yellow. So I don't know if that's going to be the... It's not the case on pretty much everything that doesn't have the the sort of stylistic um, thing around the resource cost symbol. It also has the the black line for the for the timeline with the Floodborne, Villain, King, etc. Um, I'm not sure what this, what this is exactly. I, like I said, this was the one specifically. I was like, okay, this image has just been recreated. This is sort of a... Uh, like a like an issue right it's it's a typo but it's not um my best guess would be some sort of devotion right so it's like if you're satisfying a another criteria it's like allows you to cast this i think i mean one of my friends uh suggested that this could be related to like when you're able to play it whether if you're winning or losing just stop snowballing but i doubt that because it leads to so many feels bad right just not being able to play your cards play your hands um my best guess is like some sort of some sort of devotion so like in the case of like you need to be satisfying some other some other previous criteria or set of previous criteria in order to cast this for the cost this is played or probably cast this at all because there's an alternate cost in it it's like what are your thoughts uh, this is this is honestly this is the one that has to be stumped the most at this point as it does for me as well i mean because we don't necessarily know how resources are generated yet to a degree as well and how they're going to be split and such Uh, it might be a matter of uh, you know i'm looking at uh, like a lot of my speculation goes into digging into card games that i've already played and from the popular to the obscure there's a game called BattleTech that was actually a richard garfield uh game after magic where they tried to reconcile um cost issues like mana flood not having the stuff it, the game itself BattleTech is very similar to magic you play locate uh, you play like sort of resource 
things that are kind of like mm-hmm. lands. Uh, so in the same kind of, there's five different ones. And the mechs that you would play would have two costs. There would be the costs that would be the cheaper cost, but the more specific cost. So if we're to use this from a magic perspective, it's like, okay, this this card costs one green and one red. But if you don't have access to all that, it had an alternative cost. Like, let's say you get screwed out of drawing red. It'd be like, okay, you can play one red and one green, or you could pay four of anything else. Just to sort of reconcile that. I'm wondering if this is a matter of Mickey Mouse is an eight and it has to be Ruby-related mm-hmm. resource to play it. or And whereas Hades is like, anything um you could pay anything to play so i'm very curious uh uh, this one really kind of gets me you know this this one like like you has me very stumped so i think that your conclusion makes sense but it runs off the assumption that the resource system is based off of like a color a set of colors or like a land kind of system right where you are you have like a disparity between the types of resources you're you're drawing rather than all sort of being synonymous and the same and i actually have a theory for the whole arcana resource system uh now I don't have an image to pull up of it, but if you look at the back of Lorcana card, it's actually pretty atypical for like a, a normal card back. Um, it just has the symbol. It actually just kind of has the, the symbol of the resource thing on the back, which is, I, I understand it's like a normal asset for the game, but it has that and it's a bit stylized and there's nothing else. It doesn't say Lorcana. It doesn't, it doesn't have any of that from what I understand. So I actually think the way you're going to generate resources is you're going to put a single card from your hand face down every single turn to generate your resources. So you're effectively giving up like a a piece of like a card advantage to generate a resource um and obviously max one per turn i think and i think that that's uh, it, that's my current theory for the for the resource base uh, of um of lorcana what do you think like well the, the other thing that sort of catches my eye here is the fact that like there are a lot of cards that cards that go up into the eight nine type of um atmosphere where they they expect games to go that far whereas so if you're saying you can generate resources by putting a card down that is a very expensive thing to do because let's say you start again this is all speculation but let's say you start with a hand of like seven cards uh you let's say under the premise you draw a card every turn you're if you're putting down one card every turn there might be a situation where maybe that's not the case maybe you don't put down a card every turn maybe you can put down as many cards as you want if you start with seven and you want to jam a five drop down Maybe you put five cards down, you jam a five drop, you have one left. You're, that is the trade-off. It's like, I want to start strong, but I'm not drawing the cards I want. That could also kind of playing on what your idea is. That is the trade-off of start strong, but have less options. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I would be really surprised if they went that route because it's... It, be very very hard to balance but i think you're also assuming you're also assuming when you say draw when you say draw one because you like i don't think that's a given or like a constant right it could be draw two like there could there's other ways to offset this sort of resource system and increase card draw increase players agency over their decks and let them see more more cards throughout the game see because you're right if you drew a single card every single turn you would be operating at significant card disadvantage to put resources down you wouldn't see many cards and your your decisions as a player would be very very limited so i think the amount of cards you 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 would draw is potentially up for debate in that sort of system as well but at the same time you know the resource system is not confirmed at all yet yeah that's the thing it's like we're all just guessing here like it's still fun to do so but i think that cost and how cost uh, and how cards are paid for is probably the biggest question mark 
so far because yeah. I think that when we as we progress through this episode, we're gonna know we're gonna basically sort of have certain things almost on lockdown. Yeah, I think that a lot of this comes from like a lot of the speculation and when we rule certain things out does come a bit from like faith in in the developers, right? So if if you if you if you put faith in Lorcana that it like and you assume that it's well crafted and they put out a product they want to be successful and they're using game design, designers from other successful games, like it would also stand to reason that those people wouldn't make the same mistake that Magic just obviously suffers for at this point. Like the land system in Magic, while it adds a a dynamic of gameplay to the game, it's 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 clearly the first draft, right? And it's not the final product. And I would be really surprised to see a triple a game i'm just calling triple a triple a tcg game come out in 2023 and use that system i i highly doubt it well i mean look at all the games that have sort of preceded magic magic is kind of like the 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 one of the godfathers if you will of of tcgs it's one of the ogs of this game and everything that's come beyond it like when when something works, it is usually uh, it is usually becomes the the foundation for other things to build off of. If you look at Hearthstone, Hearthstone has the standard ramping mana system. Every turn, you get one more, you get one more, and then you look at something like Runeterra. Runeterra took that and took the feels bad of not being able to play on a particular turn or not being able to maximize the usage of your mana on a particular turn and banking it into a mana bank. So that is already an improvement where bad turns can also be invested into future turns, which is nice. I don't, I have never seen another game after Magic use the same kind of land system successfully or have dug into it and said, this is what we want to do. So I would be, incredibly hard-pressed to think that uh, Lorcana would use a land-based mana uh, mana generating system. The only games I've seen do it are cheap riff-offs, and I, I really doubt that Lorcana is that. Let's go ahead and head into the attack and defense here of Mickey Mouse. So, you know, obviously the five, we say obviously, but we would assume that the five on the left here uh, is the attack and the five on the right is the defense. So one of my previous theories was that there was no persistent damage and because you know, these characters actually didn't have health, they had defense. So you either had more attack to conquer the character and beat it in a challenge and banish it, or you didn't, you would simply lose, which is kind of similar to magic, but also kind of not. But yeah, so we do have attack and defense, and it, it does look like we it's persistent, whether it's over a turn, turn cycle, or the entire game. But, you know, that 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 sort of defensive value does have the ability to tick down. I'm assuming attack has the ability to tick up and tick down as well via buffs and things like that. Yeah, uh, I think this one is as clear-cut as it gets. Uh, one of the things being purely from the fact that the defense aspect, it looks like a shield, mm -hmm. you know? And and from that point onward, you can kind of... The other one is just like a... It's like almost like a little starburst, as it were. Uh, what I've noticed also is the terminology used in Disney's Lorcana is taking... is kind of really avoiding terms like damage, attack, uh, you know, kill or whatever. And I think that... Uh, you know, it's on brand, especially for what the audience might be for this game as well. But I think that when it comes to strength slash attack and defense slash health, I think that this is basically as clear cut as it gets. Well, I'm happy you brought that up because I'm actually my 
I have a theory that there's actually it's all creature based combat. Um, obviously spells and stuff like that, but there's no players, right? There's no there's no sort of omnipresent players that exist outside the board state that you're attacking and reducing some sort of life total from, like you would in Magic: The Gathering. I think that it's all actually um, you know creature and spell based combat uh, for board state, and it has to do something with the lore tokens as a win condition to sort of yeah you know, to sort of win the game. You're not going to be ticking down an, an opponent's life total. That's sort of my current running theory. Well, Pokemon actually does is does it similar, mm-hmm. right? Like I think that if we're going to draw parallels, uh, taking away from a life total and attacking a face, so to speak, like you mentioned, like Magic is is similar because you as a player uh, exist in the game, but outside of the game, the game arena, as it were, you are the life total. That's what you're. You are the quote unquote wizard or the planeswalker or the spell slinger. In this case, in this case, in po- like in Pokemon, you're attacking there or you're you're creating combat between the two Pokemon. And the win condition is essentially defeating six of them or, or obtaining six of the prizes. It's kind of like a, a health total to that degree, but there's no, there, like, one, defeating one Pokemon or dealing X amount of damage to a Pokemon does not increase or decrease the your your progress towards that win condition. So maybe this has a more parallels towards that type of win condition. Yeah. Well, let's get into this uh, this type line, the tribal and the color. So if we look at Mickey Mouse specifically, it says dream, born, and hero. Um, just to talk about the first one here. So we, we've seen three different kinds. So we've dream, born, flood, born, and then was it villain, born? Is that the other one? There's there's villain as well. Just flat out villain, I believe, What's is another the other? option. I'm just going to check on the other. Story, born, flood, born, dream, born. Okay, that's it. So those are the three. We haven't seen anything outside those three. And then you have hero, villain, and I mean, we don't have to worry about the, the kind of the rest of the stuff on the type quite yet. But those three as the core sort of macro archetypes of whatever could be on this timeline. I think it's really important. But you also called to the distinction between the colors. So with, with Mickey Mouse, we do see it's a red, a shade of red. But like we saw in Hades previously, it was actually, it was black. Um, and apparently that's significant. I have no idea why at this point. I haven't been able to draw a distinction. There's a, there's a spell, uh, the Maleficent spell, or I think that's how you say their name. Uh, the Dragonfire, I think. Uh, no, that so that actually doesn't have it. So the, I don't know what other colors have this black. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, Aurora does. Yes. Aurora does. Aurora does. And this is one of the, uh, again, this goes back to the fact that everything has a significance in here. And if you're drawing parallels, you're looking at this, the Mickey Mouse, the the tribal or the type, uh, or and the color strip on this for Mickey Mouse, in this case, Brave Little Taylor, is red. However... Everything has a purpose, as for, as per uh, you know the, does, the designer of the framework of the UI, if you will, of the card. Everything has a purpose. So you're looking at it, and you're looking at something like uh, Hades or Stitch or whatever. They're both they have both have black palettes uh, on the back, and they're more so they look like they're painted, like it's an actual paintbrush. It's a little bit more splotchy. It's a little less clean cut. And then you're thinking, well, maybe it's just that color because both Hades. And Stitch are yellow. Like, that's the color base for the, the creature. But then you're going back, and when when you say, quote, everything has a purpose, look at Robin Hood, which is blue, and has a blue color strip, and then look at Aurora, which is also blue, but has a black color strip. So there is a, there is a, a distinct uh, difference between the two of them, and that, again, goes back to the fact that this is by design, that there is significance there. But what is that significance? We still don't know. But we, the important part here is that that is an important element to the card game. That is another puzzle piece for all of you sleuths out there who are really trying to 
you know, formulate the rules in your mind before, you know, Lorcana actually gives us the goods because all of this is speculation, but damn it, there are some really good pieces here. Yeah, for what it's worth, all of the characters that have the black type line are Floodborne so far. Uh, so something to keep in mind. But yeah, I mean, there's not much else to discern outside of this timeline. Like the color is obviously the most important part. We're sort of understanding the macro, kind of the big macro type archetypes between Dreamborn, Floodborn, and Storyborn. Um, and then after that, I think there's going to be some tribal synergy as we saw in Hades um, as a thing. Like your other villains, you get this plus one pip, something like that with the, the sinister plot. Um, so they are relevant. Uh, but I'm really interested about the three, the three distinctions, because those are important and I haven't found a way to understand why they're important yet. I don't know how you're, how the deck building limitations in Larkana work. Can you only have two colors? Can you only have floodborns? Can you only have dream boards? Can you only have two of them? Um, like, do they add some sort of limitation? Is the board state completely open to be played or are there something like lanes, right? Are there maybe multiple lanes? You can only play the floodborns in the flood lane, the dream boards in the dream lane and et cetera, et cetera. Something like that. Um, so much that could come from this, to be honest. Yeah, there's a lot to to sort of digest here. But again, under the guise or the premise that everything has a place and nothing is just haphazard, that is something that is going to definitely factor into the rules in one way, shape, uh, or another. But I just like I, I, what I like about this is the fact that there's just there's there's distinctions between. You know, it's not just a character. It's a character of a particular class that has a particular affiliation. And that usually alludes to synergistic uh, bonuses based on deck building around that particular archetype. But even from a just fun perspective, Brendan, sometimes it's just a matter of like, I just, you know, like I play magic. I, I just want to play angels or I just want to play zombies. And like, it doesn't matter the power level. I think that this is also a good thing when it comes to deck building and enjoyment from the casual perspective as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some sort of role playing. Let's go on to the game text and abilities. I mean, you'll see you'll see sort of this on every single card, but looking at Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse does have the, uh, what I would call a passive ability of evasive, which means only characters of evasive can challenge this character, which is kind of like attacking it. Um, and then, of course, it has the, the flavor text. So really not much to dive in on this. We've seen tons of different possibilities for... Um, so for keywords that could go onto that card, which we'll talk about later. Um, but evasive, I think evasive is pretty is pretty face value to be honest. Like it's pretty straightforward. Now, well, we'll talk about evasive uh, when we get to all the keywords that we know so far. Uh, what I do want to maybe inter you know maybe speculate. There are card games out there that have that the lore of the card actually is important to a degree. Star Wars CCG had um, cards that actually forced you or that were that were the in the lore of a, of a star wars ccg card it would give a little bit of history and say oh you know like this character and like let's say you're playing uh, darth vader it would say uh the feared imperial leader of the empire you know blah 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 commanded whatever fleet yada 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 there would be cards out there that would actually say uh your your target leader gets plus two power or something where the only place that you would find this keyword is in the lore box. So you'd have to actually read the lore to see if the, if the card actually uh, dealt with it. Now, I don't think that that's what's going to happen here, but it is a, a potential, it's an option, but there are also other, a bunch of cards that actually have no lore boxes whatsoever so yeah, i would be yeah that that system does sound pretty clunky too uh, it's like we have to like dice we're dissecting the card template for like the smallest text that's in italics oh, yeah. it's like it's like ugh. well 
the the worst part about it was like legitimately when people would actually and I've seen this. It's like it, it, people would say, for instance, like the card Obi Wan. Obi Wan never had the term general in 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 the lore box, but people would go and refer to the movies and be like, they refer to him as general in the movies, so this should be a legal play. Like that becomes very messy uh, in certain cases, and I don't think that's where Lorcan is going. But I would I have to say it. I mean. We're both very experienced card players. We have to throw out certain theories and potential and, and possibilities as outlandish. This is a one in a million. I don't think it's going to factor in, but it's it's a possibility. Well, speaking of one in a million, tell me what Laura is. Tell me what these pips are. Oh, man, I love these pips. Brendan, this is what I, I was hoping that you would actually clean up. I, I The more that we kind of dig into pips and stuff like this, and again, I mentioned that when I talked to the, the Lorcana um when I spoke to the Lorcana Twitter account, the one question that I ventured, the one question that I try to sort, you know, just kind of sneak under the door was, hey, what the hell are these pips? And they said that that is probably the one thing, the one secret they are guarding the most that they didn't want to leak. The one thing that they're hoping is the big reveal. And when it is a big reveal like this, Brendan, my assumption is that it is it is so rule intensive or is so sorry it's so intimately linked to the the rules of the game but not just how the game you know operates on a microscopic turn to turn basis but the overarching objective of the game so i like you now am so locked in that this is a win condition oriented um part of the of the board and it it is a it is something that is also tied heavily into the cost of the cards. The more pips, the heavier it's going to cost you as well. And I don't know if that is a like if that if the pips are something wherein the more pips you have on a card is beneficial to you, or if it's beneficial to your opponent. So it's definitely beneficial to you, and there's for a few reasons. <clears throat> so we can we can reasonably discern from other cards. So I'm gonna pull up Mulan right now. Uh, this is a prime example that pips are are positive. So pips are definitely they seem to be definitely not negative. Um, and yeah, I mean that's just something to consider because it takes out a lot of the other theories that we might have on pips. Uh, I also think that pips are win condition. Um, I think it's pretty clear, but I also. But, I would assume I would venture to say that I don't know if they're the only win condition. That's really really important. Um, when I think about pips as a win condition, I kind of call back to another game called Keyforge, where at sort of the end of the turn, uh, sort of post combat or something of that nature, you would be able to sort of cash in or reap the pips um, using the Keyforge term. So somehow generate them as sort of a win condition win condition resource. Other than that, I'm not super sure. We just we we know it's definitely a benefit. We we're assuming at this point that there is no life total that you're attacking. It's all creature-based combat. And if that's the case, the pips are core to sort of how you win that game, right? It's not going to be, oh, I have five characters, you have four, I win the game. It's probably going to have to, it almost certainly has something to do with these, uh, the lore counters on the heroes specifically. All right, so we, I think we discussed this, um, it might have been last episode, if not, it was in private, but these pips, especially when we're looking at Mulan, Mulan has a game text where, you know, whenever this character banishes another character into challenge, your other characters get plus one pips or lore or whatever they are. This might be a situation, I think that we were talking about the idea of at the end of a turn, you could take a card off the board and like, Cash tuck it. it or or cash it in yep. as a a a sort of okay i'm i'm tucking this card away it's worth x amount of pips i now have two trackers i or it's like so let's say 
you have a like when Mulan quote unquote leads by example, Mulan is out there getting the job done, inspiring the people that are following her. Now you might be able to say, all right, well this one this one character went from one pip to two. I'm going to go ahead and cash this character in for two pips. I have two pips in the bank now. I'm that much closer to my win condition, whether the win condition be something like 10 pips, 20 pips, whatever it is. Um, the reason why I also think that this might be the case is because this also opens up formats. This also opens up a quicker formats, and it also opens up sort of something like, how many pips are we playing? Right, let's play a 10-pip game. Let's play a 20-pip game. Let's do something along those lines. Uh, it might also be a situation where um, these, yeah, like you know, like you're you're creating win conditions where maybe there's a card that allows Mulan to banish multiple things, and then you're cashing in your lower your lower strength units for above rate to progress closer to that win condition. So I think that's what it is <laughs> at this point. Um, there's, there's another key aspect to this that uh, it's going to sound like it's unrelated, but it is really related. And that's when you attack with creatures, if you can sort of put them together, right? If you can like ban them together to attack a single thing or whether each creature combat needs to be creature, single creature on singular creature. Because if singular creature on singular creature, some of these lower cost cards like Olaf, Olaf has no pips and it has a 1-3 stat line. Like one so far in what we've seen doesn't kill anything. And it, like the card actually makes like no sense because you would drop it and it just does nothing unless they have something that's an X1, which is seems to be unlikely, but also like it's just like maybe they just wouldn't play it. Like Olaf, Olaf for me is like one of the most important cards that we've seen so far because it, it breaks... It sort of breaks the um, sort of the tenets of what we've seen on every other card. It's a one three one cost with no pips. It's just like what function does this have in the game? And it's like it might just be like the most aggressive card you could possibly play because you can't actually use it to progress your win condition. But my assumption, based off Olaf as well, which we would have gotten into later, but I'm going to bring it up now, is that creature combat is not singular creature on singular creature. You will be able to sort of put your creatures together to attack a single one. I think that's what it is. If not, someone's got to someone's got to explain to me the enigma that is freaking Olaf. I think everybody overlooks this guy, but he makes no sense. Well, besides being quite the character in uh, in Frozen, like the thing about Olaf is and the stat line of one three, uh, a one drop one three is like the Hearthstone baseline for a one drop these days. It's just what it is. However, one threes in those particular types of of games are there because they're there to soak damage and to progress into later game because it's a it's a little bit of a uh, it trades efficiently with early game and it takes work. It buys you time. But if there's no face, quote unquote, mm -hmm. to attack, then a one three is like you mentioned. It's kind of like what the hell are you doing there you're not protecting face as it is you're just there you're food for bigger creatures and for bigger characters um i would suspect that it might just be a matter of something where like yeah you band together and it's like all right well my one three and my five five together create uh you know a, a six eight and we taking out this but you on the on the receiving end you get to dish out where you want to deal your damage do you want to kill the olaf do you want to do this or banish the olaf or whatnot um that that's another element to it there's so many questions when it comes to combat to be honest like um i think that based off every single card we've seen so far you could the the best assumption you can make about turn cycles in combat is that they're done completely siloed of the other player that they're done completely individually so there's no blocking there's no instant speed nothing like that right the, the player plays his turn then player two plays their turn and that is the most simplistic way to make the game right as the most sort of uh kid friendly and just like easy way because like in 
anything outside of that sort of opens priority windows with blocking being kind of an exception to that rule where blocking doesn't open priority windows, but it still does make things a bit more complicated. Um, so maybe blocking's a thing, but right now, based off every single card I've seen uh, spoiled by Lacana, I don't think there actually is instant speed. I think everything is, is sort of main phase and sorcery speed. But let's go ahead and head into sort of the next thing on Mr. Mickey Mouse, which is just the bottom line. This is the Disney Expo version, but we talked about this on last week's episode with the rarity being shown here in the bottom, as well as the sort of collection number. Um, you won't see this because this is a promo card, but just something to keep an eye out for. Um, uh, yeah, rarity, obviously important in games like this with, with ascending and descending uh, sort of rarity. And if we're at like a game like Magic, it's, it's really funny because if you look at a game like Flesh and Blood, if you look at a card that is at the highest rarity versus a card that's at the lowest rarity, they usually don't differ in terms of value. But if you look at something like Magic Gathering, you could have a three drop three three at, at common, but you could have a three drop like four four at at the rarest, right? You could just have this this effectively like completely pushed stat. Um, so, and I think that this game is following more that line than the flesh and blood line, where everything is sort of stabilized on a on a singular value. Yeah, that, that's that's typically how it should be. I mean, there are common cards that are just powerhouses. There are uh, there are you know uncommons that are just you know going to get work done, and there are rares and and legendary cards that are kind of I don't want to say garbage, but they're they just don't make the cut in certain cases. But uh, we'll see how that kind of pans out. This is the least interesting aspect of the anatomy of a card, frankly, in my opinion. But I know there's a lot of people out there who like to play detective, and when new cards start to leak, uh, we would love to have a preview card by the way Lorcan if you're if you're doing uh, if you're canvassing for those but a lot of times people once the first set comes out and they see how the the numbering of cards are it's like okay all the heroes and then all the 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 action or spell cards and then all the equipment comes after that and then the next hero comes out so a lot of players will find the numbers within the sets when the next set comes out and say well this is numbered at this which is weird which suspects that the previous you know like they do all the the math with it and then they figure out okay how many cards are we getting for this for this class for this whatever so there is significant significance there but for a first set i think it's the, the least interesting a lot of it all right well let's talk about some keywords we already talked about evasive let's go ahead and head into shift which i think is particularly interesting so i just i sorry i just want to go back to evasive really quickly and sure. because um evasive is a is a, a keyword that you only characters with evasive can challenge each other. Now, the problem with this is that if we're looking at Mickey Mouse, I think, which is the only card that has evasive as that we know of, the 5-5 five, five baseline stat, if we go to those other cards such as, um, uh, I call it the Chillwind Yeti, it's that uh, it's the green dude, I forgot his name, but mm -hmm. that that has a 4-5 stat line with basically vanilla, vanilla stats, and that card costs what? 4-5? Five? Five. 5. So there's a 3 cost differential for a one stat line gain on this which i think is almost insignificant i feel like for one stat line gain it's like 0.33 or 0.5 of a cost to gain to go up in a number i think what we can discern here is how much a pip is worth and how much a keyword like evasive is worth when it comes to the cost of a card yeah, so I mean, if you just did the math, I mean, it, it almost equals it equals pretty closely to a pip as a single resource. Each pip, each pip is an additional resource, and um, uh, sorry, the the pips are another resource, and the evasive is a resource, and um, yeah, that's how you add up the eight, right? Oh yeah, so like the five five, and like it, it, exactly like it, this is. I think that when it comes down to it, 
you know, when you're building a card, you have to kind of associate a particular value to a card versus the rarity that it's at as well. And it might just be that evasive is like, well, if, if you give a, a vanilla 5-5 five five is a 5-drop. Uh, every pip is, is like 0.75 of a resource, and evasive is an additional resource, and that's where we get to where we're at on the actual building of a card. But that's that's kind of uh, where it's at. That's kind of what I, what I wanted to talk about, at least from, uh, from evasive. But mm -hmm. the fact that if evasive exists... If evasive is a powerful element to the game, if you just can't mess with Mickey because you don't have evasive units, that can become problematic. So it's uh, it's something to look into. There's a lot that's interesting about Mickey Mouse being in a power 5-5 five, five with four pips. I think that this card, it does look a bit like, it does look like a power win the game. And because it's so, the stats are so particularly low and then I, I don't value evasive as, as highly. So I think that like the pips are really important and it kind of draws me closer to the potential pip value to actually win the game. Uh, Cause I feel like you, you play this card and you should win the game pretty quickly after because it, we played so late, most yeah. likely. Well, you're at eight, right? Like, and and I think that part of the game's appeal is going to be to a younger uh, a younger audience as well to play it, and uh, you know, it's uh, adults who play any other card games. Like, part of the a lot of the uh, the the critique that Gwent had like later on in its life was that people were just complaining. Oh, my game lasted 15 minutes. Like this is this is bull. <laughs> and it's like, are you like 15 minutes for a game is like that's not a lot. But people are so used to playing, you know, pirate aggro or face hunter on Hearthstone where the game lasts seven minutes, or you you basically know if you won or lost within the first three turns. I think that if a game goes eight, it should be already determined who's going to win. Yeah, and that's uh, that's not even considering Marvel Snap what that's done to people's attempts to span the turn card. <laughs> that's true. So let's go into Shift because I think a Shift is really interesting. I think I figured it out. Um, so Shift, it basically says you may play X, play this on top of one of your Y characters. So that doesn't make any sense, right? If you if you only played Hades as an eight drop, it's like yeah, maybe Hades took damage. We have persistent we have persistent damage throughout the entire turn. Your Hades now is like a six one, and you play another Hades for eight. I still think that's like terrible value, and it's just like it's just not. There's no way the game actually functions like that, in my opinion. I think Shift would just be kind of a bad ability. So I think that Shift alludes to you playing Hades on top of other Hades that are not 8-cost Hades. So if you look at Hades, it's Hades, King of Olympus. Hades is not the King of Olympus, though. Hades is the King of the Underworld. So this is a high cost. So what if you had Hades at 1-drop, you had Hades at 4-drop, and the 1-drop was like Peasant Hades. The 4-drop the was like, you know, normal... Hades is like reintegrating to society and then eight is the king of Olympus. So this gives you a way to like you have this sort of tribal theme and you have this sort of Hades theme in your deck and you're able to ramp out uh, like the top end Hades because of that. And I think that makes a lot of sense with shift and it even makes sense flavor wise. I want to pull up another one here, which is stitch. And if I have, to, I'm going to pull up another card before that as well. So if we look at, if we look at Elsa, right? Elsa is like Elsa Snow Queen. It's just very vanilla. It's what you would expect of Elsa. And everything is like that. Like Robin Hood, Archer, um, Mulan, the you know, all that. It all makes sense. But then you have Stitch, Stitch Rockstar. Well, that doesn't make much sense. Why is Stitch particularly a rock star? It seems like he's been way more, it's way more narrow than sort of like the vanilla Stitch. And I think it's because of Shift. I think the Shift adds more Stitches into your deck that cost less and allow you to ramp this card out at a faster speed. Uh, faster speed. That's my that's my theory for for um, for shift flake. I don't know if you agree with it, but at this point, I'm like 95 percent on it. I think shift can be ramp is is what it could be without necessarily ramping to the to the degree where you're also generating a snowball effect on the board because well a lot of the 
problems with uh, or the critique that ramp would get and say like Hearthstone, like Druid ramp or something like that is that you're playing above rate for the rest of the game and you're not, you know, you get to play a five drop on turn four and then on turn five, um, you know, you're playing a seven drop, but your five drops still there. So you, you never give your opponent the opportunity to catch up or whatnot while your opponent is generating above rate. That's a great opportunity. That's a, that, that's a great, assessment and i think that's a, a pretty decent theory uh i also like the fact that you also hit us with a nice little history lesson at the beginning you're like he is not the uh <laughs> the king of olympics that would be zeus which uh it's true but it's true because like start as like hades king of the underworld hades like you know uh common peasant and then like gets up to the the surface world and then moves his way up that could be something i would i would love to rip open any kind of starter deck that Hades is in or like a Hades themed deck where maybe that's the whole buildup. It's like, maybe you have a one drop Hades that is bad. And then you could, you know, you could shift up to a four drop Hades, uh, like shift three, play the four drop shift six, play the eight drop. Like, but you're replacing it the entire time. It doesn't mean that let's say you draw up and never got to play the earlier versions that you can't play the other ones. It just means that you're playing them at a ramp speed. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a, a, a pretty good theory that we can run with. Yeah. So that that's my theory for shift. Um, challenger, when this character challenges, we think we see this on a hook, right? Um, yeah, challenger plus two on hook. While challenging, this character gets plus X. Uh, this isn't steel, right? So I think this kind of makes sense. So, so like we have a one, two, but there's a pip on it. So when I talk about Olaf not making any sense, it's not because he's a, he's a one, three. It's because a one, three with no pip. And I, I genuinely believe that pips and lures are the way to win the game. So you look at Captain Hook, challenger plus two. So when it challenges a character, it effectively becomes a, a three, two. I think that makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's pretty straightforward. I think it's going to be somewhat on theme for like specific, um, specific elements i don't know what you'd call them but yeah i mean steel specifically i think we'll see more challenge than like other characters or other yeah, well, colors yeah uh there's like evasion uh evasive is with red um you know card draw and stuff like that the other one that's very important is ward and ward i think is a very telling uh, aspect here because ward is another keyword opponents can't choose them except to challenge so this again alludes to the fact we've already seen what certain action cards are like Dragonfire, which is just straight up banish uh, a character there's going to be a lot of interaction that comes straight from the hand and directly points and clicks at a particular uh, character or an opponent or whatnot and i think that ward is in itself a keyword we've seen it in magic ward uh, x is pay x on top it's like an extra tax just to touch something but in this case it's more along the lines of shroud or stealth or or uh or things along that that nature yeah, basically, this means this um, this creature can only be interacted with via creature based combat, so you can't you can't dragon fire it, um, which makes sense. I mean, there's not yeah. re there's not really much to dive into that other than I think that this just pushes the narrative that everything's going to be at sorcery speed and there's going to be no instant speed because I think the ward would have been potentially worded differently. Um, it's just like we we don't have a compelling argument to think that anything is instant speed, and I think that we should operate under the the idea that it is not before then because we can see clear examples um on other parts of the card design of Larkana that it has been it's been designed with the intent to simplify it down and instant speed is the opposite of that just creating all these priority windows and all the other shenanigans that come with that so um for me that that's kind of what ward pushes a bit farther 
let's just already dig into the fact that like once this game releases, I would guess by Christmas, people are going to be fed up of blue because look at what blue already does. Blue has ward. Blue has freeze effects with Elsa. Blue is the control. Blue is the typical blue. It's the nope. It's the don't touch me. It's the play uh, uh, around the rules. It's usually draw cards, freeze stuff, bounce stuff, deny stuff. And I feel like that is already what people are going to be. I'm already like super excited about blue because that is absolutely my jam. But blue to me feels like what everybody's going to be complaining about come Christmas. You're gonna love this because I think there's actually a small chance that you're wrong, and we can get we can we can <laughs> we can we can discern that if we look at uh, if we look at Robin Hood. This is our first blue card, and you might think that this card is a controlling card, but it's it's the complete opposite. This card is 100% a tempo card. So if you look at the ability feed the poor when this character when you play this character, if an opponent has more cards in their hand than you, draw a card. That's the most anti-blue thing. Ever, right? Because it means you're playing on card, you're playing out your cards, playing your cards aggressively. You don't, you're not maintaining card advantage. Um, this is like, this is very likened to something that's more aggressive. Um, and I think that board being a form of evasion, it doesn't necessarily lend itself towards control specifically, although it does function well in control shells. I think that. You know, we also have Robin Hood gaining evasive. So I think the blue is, you know, we've seen both ward and evasive on blue cards. So that, that is important to notice. But right now, I don't think we've seen a compelling argument yet to suppose that blue is actually the control color. I think that it, I see it more in potentially steel. I mean, hook is weird because hook, hook, hook is going to trade up consistently, which really could fit into any strategy. Honestly, the most controlling card in Lorcana, I thought prior to this was actually uh Krilla DeVille. Um, the way the, how it was sort of balancing like recursion and stuff like that, but it is kind of a classic green archetype and sort of this graveyard or reanimate or something like that. But um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, not a hundred percent sold uh, that blue is the blues, the, the, the normal, Archetype it's drilled into my head. Yeah, it's like totally drilled into my head that as soon as you see blue, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be upset. You're not going to get to play the game that that you wanted to. Your deck design means nothing because you're going to get manipulated and and sort of distorted uh, into another dimension. Um, I, I I'm I'm always a fan of it. Like people always say, like mill is the worst thing in a particular card game. Control things like that are so boring. It just kills it. But without that, I think that it becomes a lot more boring. Uh, if it's just ramp and aggression, you need those kinds of effects. But again, like I said, I've been conditioned to just see blue and think frustration. Listen, Flight. Uh, I mean, I'll be your therapist today. You don't have to justify <laughs> that to anybody. You can you can just be honest and fun is some zero and you will be having having all of it and is a finite resource in a game um i love it yeah so let's talk a little bit about interactions just i'm going to translate these to other <laughs> to other card game terms so banish is when something goes to the graveyard we don't have any distinctions between graveyard and exile at this point looks like it's all graveyard challenge is when you attack something i'm not sure if that is also when you get attacked if they call challenge like just all of combat uh, but it does seem like if you are going to use your character to attack another character you are challenging them you're attacking them so challenge doesn't seem to be attacked um and then exert exert is tap <laughs> so uh yeah the tap what you would what you would assume we're gonna talk about <laughs> let's just go into it right now so i've got sort of our ending section here is just gonna be nice little tidbits <laughs> about some of the key factors of this game so we're gonna start off with stitch here this is just really interesting because stitch tells us that everything comes in with haste <laughs> so nothing comes in with summoning sickness so 
there's kind of two ways you can angle at this. The, the less convincing way is that summoning sickness is a clunky mechanic that doesn't make sense. So they would obviously try to bring it out if they possibly could, if it made sense. But you can also just look at adoring fans on Stitch. Whenever you play a character with cost two or less, you may exert it to draw a card. Well, if that card came in with summoning sickness, there would be no cost of doing that. So that should be a downside. Um, to exert it and draw a card, uh, you should be giving up some value. If it wasn't able to be exerted anyway, it would just be a total free roll. So almost certainly everything comes in with haste. Uh, Flake, do you agree with that one? I do. And I think that this needs to be, you know, this needs to be reiterated. It's the fact that you, I think this is the biggest clue. And I'm so glad that you kind of dug into this and just settled on it because it makes the most amount of sense. The fact that if things did have summoning sickness, you would not have this game text and it would not be on a six drop with a low stat line to mean that this is a fairly powerful related card. And I think that you're spot on summoning sickness is not a thing in Lorcana because you can play a card and immediately exert it for benefit. If that were not the case, that game text would be null and void so i think you hit it spot on i think that that is a very important element and that is a huge huge veil pulled back on some of the rules that lorcana is hiding from us all right, so if we head into Mulan here, uh, both Mulan and Hades, they were spoiled with the gift set, but they they make it a they paint a very clear picture that uh, these lore counters, these pips, are a positive. Um, you know, we were sort of speculating before, like, could they be negative? Are they a cost? Like, they're definitely not at this point because you're getting you're getting additional lore counters for winning combat, for doing things that you are effectively like risking your characters or giving up an opportunity cost of them doing something else to gain this. They are obviously a positive, and they're progressing you in a positive direction. Hades is the same thing. Hades is sort of a, a deck building payoff where you are getting additional lore counters for playing uh, other villains. So you're satisfying a criteria, a deck building restraint. So obviously positive at that point. I'm going to pull up Dragonfire here next. So Dragonfire here is the only spell we've seen so far, and it's an action. Um, just to, once again, reiterating the, the idea that there is going to be no instant speed. This looks to be sorcery speed, banished chosen character. Dragonfire is particularly interesting um, for reasons that I can't, I don't know, I can't really put into words. But it's just funny that Dragonfire is a spell in of itself, but it also exists on uh maleficent as well as just like sort of a enter the battlefield effect maleficent being a nine drop seven five two pip and effectively is just a two for one when it hits the battlefield um just something to consider i'm not sure if we're going to see other spells that are on you know other characters be individual cards or whatever aurora shift with the ward so we talked about shift, right? We, we, we talked about Hades. We talked about mm -hmm. Stitch. So this one obviously breaks the mold. Aurora, uh, Dreaming Guardian. That makes sense. But I think this could just be like, this could be the, the mid-level one, right? So we talked about like, if, if Hades Queen or Hades King of Olympus is the highest level, the eight drop, then maybe the five drop of Hades or the four drop, <clears throat> you know, the, the mid one is just like Hades God of the Underworld. And then like the one drop is like Hades, like derelict peasant or something, you know? So I, I'm pretty sure shift is like this progressive. Uh, progressive progress of this individual character um, and once again I think that you know Roy shift is ramp shift is ramp I, I'm I'm sold on it right now it's it's a way to ramp up the characters um, I, I just feel like th this is like a whole other discussion of archetypes and uh, identity of what these colors are going to mean like what is steel what is ruby what is amethyst and things like that like what do they represent because card games typically have an association with a particular color or or affiliation or class that it plays a certain way but we've seen shift on 
different colors now. Um, not to say that you can't do that in other card games, but typically there's ramp that is associated with one type, like green and magic or druid in, in Hearthstone. But here we've seen it in blue and we've seen it in yellow. And 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 ultimately, I'm really curious, but I'm sold that it is just merely a ramp mechanic yeah. and that's all it is. So last up is Cruella DeVille. And so... Again, if we point back to Olaf, we talk about oh, why Olaf doesn't make any sense. It's not because Olaf is a 1-3. It's because Olaf is a 1-3 without a lore counter. And it, that is what makes no sense. But we have Cradella DeVille, which is also 1-3, 2 cost, um, but does have the pip. It's just, this is a particularly interesting um, ability, which is, you'll be sorry, when this character is challenged and banished, you may return chosen character to their player's hand. So it, it bounces something, right? So my question is, Challenge. So challenged, <clears throat> this tells me <clears throat> the challenge is not only when you attack something, it's also when something attacks you. But like nobody would ever attack Cruella, right? It doesn't really make a lot of sense unless you, you're just getting like recurring value by like cashing in that pip every turn or something like that. I'm not sure if that's how it works, but I'm also assuming that this is this is an effect that works if you attack something else with Cruella and sack it effectively and then bounce their a drop back to their hand or something like that. I just think it's interesting. Um it is quite like tempo oriented, which is unusual, I think, for green uh, from what we're used to. But yeah, something to consider when we look at when we look at Corella here. All right, well, that sort of that wraps it up for me. Like we we definitely will be getting into. I think we might need more more um, might need more information before we start to get get into like what the colors mean and color identities. But yeah, you know, I did. That is a lot of the the stuff we came, went over in the end was a lot of stuff that I've kind of gone over in the, in my free time and tried to crack and I think that we've really laid it all all out on the table for what we know so far and what you know we've been thinking for what Lorcana possibly is. I think that they're fairly responsible and and plausible theories that we've thrown out there. Um, I do want to also say what I like about the about Mulan. Like, it, there's a Mulan versus Hades deck, right? Like that's kind of how it goes. And what I like about this the the dichotomy between the two is that Mulan, as the noble leader, when when Mulan a- accomplishes something, everybody else gets better. You know, as a as the lead by example, like the the fearless leader inspiring her troops. Whereas Hades, the more followers Hades has, the more powerful he becomes, the more selfish and the more like there's a, a nice little lore aspect to it that is very on point, which I really like. And I thought that that was just something that <laughs> I thought was it's not rules related. I just think it's on brand for for what this is looking to do. Yeah, I think that a lot of the cards we've seen so far have made sense from a from a lore from a lower perspective but anyway let's go ahead and head into that that the mailbag the inkwell the spilled ink i don't know we're still thinking about a name for it shoot us a comment the, uh, shoot us a youtube comment below if you want to tell us what we should name our fine our kind of our closing question section here it's like you've got some you got some questions from twitter and discord why don't you go ahead and uh lead us in yeah so the first question is from rob reckless star of the rampage it's fab rob on twitter asks will there be a Marvel or Star Wars IP crossover. This is something that I, I really, really want. And I think that this is only going to be determined with not just longevity of the game, but like extreme longevity of the game. I think that this is something we will not see for eight to 10 years. If the game is successful and they're, I don't want to say they're running out of ideas, but they're looking to put out what four sets a year. So, Look, dig through all the Disney movies. You're going to find characters for five to eight years easily. I think that once they, if they ever want to dig into those other gigantic, 
gigantic vaults of intellectual property, of resource material, of source material, it's going to take them eight to 10 years before they run out of, uh, or even run out of steam on the stuff that they currently have. So I don't foresee it happening anytime soon, but crossovers have happened in so many other games look at magic you can have optimus prime fight rick from the walking dead so it's gonna happen i think that um i doubt it myself because i think that their other their other ips have they have card games and they have very very specific identities like magic is definitely an outlier in terms of how it did sacred layer and how it started to add some of those cards in and actually i think it was executed it was executed well um i think a secret layer is actually a pretty cool product at this point um i think when it comes to disney like they're they're really they're trying to appeal to a very specific audience and it looks from everything i've seen so far it looks like like brand congruity is like very very important to them so i'd be quite surprised if they ventured off into something like marvel or star wars star wars actually being like kind of a bit edgy i think for the audience they're targeting and marvel marvel actually probably being more edgy and of course we have marvel snap which just came out and star wars has kind of had its its tons of its own thing so i doubt it but like you said i mean who knows in freaking 10 years well, that's it. It's a it's a lo- it's a down the line thing. Um, next question is from Salty Sea Cat. Do you think that this is just a Disney skin of MTG? <laughs> it's uh, I mean, I think it's a fair critique, right? Um, especially when you look at card templating, uh, you know, like cost, attack, defense. I think a lot of ga- card games that come out post Magic: The Gathering are going to be are going to be sort of criticized by some aspect of them being a skin of Magic: The Gathering. I think where card games see a lot of success is when they, they take the aspects that make magic good, but then improve upon the aspects that make magic bad and create their own unique experience doing that. I don't think this is a skin for, of magic. Um, I do think that, you know, when, from what we've seen with the lore counts, I do think they're trying to go for something unique, uh, uniquely different from magic. I think they're actually trying to, in essence, in some sort of way, compete with magic. Maybe not compete with like Grand Prix and, and World Championships, but compete with the casual player base that dominates most of, mo- uh, dominates the makeup of most of Magic the Gathering's players, players at this point. I think they're actually going to try to compete with that. And to do that, they're going to need to offer a unique experience. Yeah. And again, like I think, like you mentioned, I think it's a fair question because everything that we've seen on a card, okay, attack, defense, cost, things like that, game text, uh, uh, you know, uh, abilities like evasive and ward and whatever, like they seem very familiar. And how many games out there, how many different words are there for lifelink, life gain, uh, lifesteal, you know, things like that? There's so many card games out there that have taken that template and improved upon it, modified it, etc. I think that the basic rules of magic are such that it's a very appealing way to play and it's easy to pick up and learn, but it does have the opportunity to have ex- exceptionally deep layers to play it in various different styles to eventually come to you know a winning conclusion to the game. I think that this is not a skin of uh, of MTG. Because any game that does not have a face or a life total automatically excludes itself from being a skin of MTG. It might be a matter of, hey, the stat lines, the anatomy of the card looks very similar. But I think that win condition is the biggest element that you need to look at that would differentiate it from it. And cashing in cards for pips to, to win the game is so different than everything else out there right now. Uh that like at the same time it's like the way i was thinking about it like what if it's like you cash in a card and it like if you have four pips you deal four damage to your opponent but it's the same thing as just putting those points in your bank and doing and doing it the same way so it's interesting in that regard 
So maybe I'm like, I'm talking myself out of it. I, I, I genuinely don't believe that this is a, a skin of magic, mm-hmm. but I see why you would come to that conclusion based on the anatomy of the card. But without a rule book, man, we'll never know. But I think it looks different enough right now that it's that it draws inspiration from it. But it's not, I don't think it's a skin. If we if we wanted to critique Lurkana for having a card templating system closer to, or similar to Magic the Gathering, I would say full speed ahead. Because there are so many TCGs that come out nowadays that have the worst card templating with the lowest effort and just just absolutely atrocious. Like, it's so bad. And when you look at Lorcana, I don't care if it looks, I, don't, I wouldn't care if it looked identical to Magic the Gathering because it's clear, it's concise, it's clean, it's good to go. But there are other games that have cropped up, <coughs> Battle Spirit Saga, <coughs> Force of Will, where it's just like, who the heck is designing this? It looks like it was designed by, uh, I mean, it's just crazy. I'm, ha- I'm super happy to have something that is legible. And if it, like, even if it looked exactly like magic, that's totally good. I think card templating is extremely important, extremely important. Um, and in putting a lot of, uh, intention and sort of intelligent design behind that is, it's key to making a game successful. One little funny <laughs> Easter egg anecdote I'll throw out about it out about uh, the game that Flake and I both play, um, Flesh and Blood. Is that Flesh and Blood has a funny card templating uh, mishap, which is you know you have the color strip at the top of the card, Flake. You know mm-hmm. how you have that that uh, that sort of cost also replicated on the left side, or like the pitch on the left side as well in like the little circle. Makes no sense. Yeah. Makes no sense because nobody ever looks at that. Everybody looks at the card strip. It's just like this like redundant piece of information that made its way onto the le- onto the left side of the card. It's super funny, but yeah, I think well, I think the templating is great here. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about that too is like the fact that I think that what they designed the the color strip to be. I think I remember uh, James White talking about how it's just a a quick, like when you're fanning out your cards, you can get a quick look at it without having to count the pips on the on the left side. Where it's like, oh, this is like the shortcut, but the shortcut just became the actual true way to look at it in that regard. Like yeah. you can literally take away that real estate at the top left of the card and fill it with something else. You're you're, you're spot on with that. Um, one more question. This one's from Citizens of Lorcana. When I talked about accounts that tweet memes about a spring release of the rules, this is exactly them. Uh, here's my burning question. What is the resource system going to look like in Lorcana? I think that this is a mystery that we are all trying to unearth. Yeah, I mean, I put, I put my two cents in for it. Um, like there's, there's a lot of systems out there in other games where like you have these two decks uh, where you draw from your resource deck and you, or you have like the option to draw from your resource deck or your main deck. I hope it's not that. I actually think those systems are clunky. I think that like trying to replicate the Hearthstone system in paper is also kind of clunky. So I don't know this this trade off where you're 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 actively making a decision between a resource or maybe an additional card to hand, or you're putting cards you don't need down as resources. I think can be pretty eloquent, right? Because like when you draw your one drop on turn five, it's like. Mm, it's kind of a dead draw, but if that turns into a resource, it's like, okay. And this is also assuming that you're maybe drawing more than one card per turn. This kind of goes back to the what I was talking about, about how um, card games take good ideas and improve upon them, or take base ideas and improve upon them. Much like how Hearthstone takes the ramping system, uh, Runeterra took it and added that kind of like feels bad bank when things don't go right, and you can sort of bank some of that resource, some of that mana for later use. There might be a situation here, and I don't know when Lorcana started its development, whether it was in 2020 or in 2019, but 
maybe there's a situation here where it takes away from, let's say, Flesh and Blood. Because Flesh and Blood's resource system, I think, is actually quite unique. And I think it's actually quite functional. Where it takes bad cards or bad situations and turns them into resources like you mentioned. What if there's a situation where you open up, <coughs> you open up with five cards or six... And every turn you're drawing a card, but the cost of the card is not necessarily about a resource system that you have. But what if it's like, okay, my eight drop is I have to put eight cards at the bottom of my deck. I just have to cycle them to the bottom of my deck. So I'm not milling myself out, but I'm giving myself a significant disadvantage because I need to take out all of these cards out of it. Like maybe it's draw two at the beginning so you can get there faster. But if you start with six cards and you're saying like, okay, I want to open up with a four drop. I'm going to put four cards at the bottom of my deck. Now I have a four drop. I have a four drop, but I have one card left in hand. My opponent still has their six cards. They drop to eight. Maybe they want to respond with a seven drop and completely gas themselves out of, of resources. They have no more hand, but I'm drawing up two. I'm drawing up two. So do I want to start f real hot and heavy and go full throttle at the beginning and then have to sort of build up on that? That kind of is an idea in my mind. But again, there's no real clues that are associated to that. Like there's nothing that really alludes to how resources are generated. Yeah, I don't think they would do that because it would lead to like some very unattractive gameplay. Also, if you look at some of the cards, it just doesn't make any sense because like let's say you drop your Mickey Mouse on eight, right? You put you put seven cards, eight cards on the bottom of your deck. I'm just literally doing nothing for eight for a couple turns as well, just drawing cards. And but I drop my Ma Maleficent on nine, and I two for one you. You lose the game instantly. It would just be like so. <laughs> it'd be it'd be like such a self-contained sort of uh, I think way to like break break any form right. of gameplay. But I do think but that's a skill check. Yeah. That's a skill check in that regard, right? Like at that point, like you have to. This is where skill kind of implements itself into the game, where you're saying, do I take this risk? Because if my opponent is playing the you know a deck with that might run maleficent or you know or a dragonfire or whatever like you have to you have to assess that again we don't know what how many cards you're drawing how many you start with but if that was the resource system then and you want to play a card as strong as mickey mouse in that regard with evasive with four pips and stuff like that maybe that's a risk that you have to take yeah i would the my one of the main things that makes me think it's the card face down specifically is the the back of the card. I think the back of the card is pretty atypical. Um, the fact that it has like no mention of Lorcana, and from what I've seen, like the printed versions that I've seen, no mention of Lorcana. It's just like the symbol. It looks exactly like the resource symbol. It looks like it's perfectly set up to sort of plug and play. You don't have to sleep the deck, and it can function as a resource on the board. Um, I would one thing I do want to mention is that. If you look at the starter decks, there are 60 cards. 60 cards with no lands is a lot of freaking cards in the deck. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's like a lot. It it's a lot of cards because like a magic deck also 60 cards, but it's not comprised of all, you know, like a lot of those are lands and and that's that's a that's a huge part of it. So just something to consider. Well, that, that, that's all we've got, I guess, from the uh, the mailbag. Thank you so much for the questions. If you have questions for the for Brendan or myself, you can go ahead and tweet them at at Podcana on Twitter. You can drop them here in the YouTube video. Catch us on uh, on Discord or out in the wild. Uh, plenty of ways to get in touch with us, but we do appreciate your questions. Trust me, we are we are are having a lot of fun, Brendan. I think just kind of doing the the detective stuff here and piecing out the clues. You know, I would love, like, it, you know how sometimes card uh, spoiler seasons are like a week or they're like two weeks. You know what? You know what's a better system for that? And I don't know why nobody else does it. Space out the cards proportionately over a the longest period of time possible before the release. 
Like, let's say there's 200 cards left in the set. Give us a card every three days or something like that. Or give us a card well, every day, something like that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing, right? Because, like, August is when everybody kind of gets a, a Gen Con, is when people are going to finally get their first licks at the game. Their rules are going to be released spring so lorcana whatever you think spring is i'm i hope it's whatever march 21st would be the best thing for us i think it's when spring kicks off but um it would be nice like once we get the rule book then then the cards that we're revealing become more clear in terms of how we assess their power we won't have much to really relate them to we don't have a previous set to sort of compare them to but i i like you if i were that if i was lord disney's lorcana and if you're listening to Zillarcana, reach out. I if uh, Part of the fun and the discussion, and it's just a great marketing aspect as well, is just to be like, all right, we're not going to tell you the rules, but we're going to give you a card with a new keyword in it. Or we're going to give you a card that kind of alludes to a different type of interaction that might clarify how things go. For instance, like you're, 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 the way that you figured out Stitch and how summoning sickness is not a thing, I think that that's a very important part of it is that that one card doesn't tell you that there's no summoning sickness but the way that you interpret it makes you think that hey it would be silly if if summoning sickness existed because this card would or like you know how how kind of things work in that regard yeah i don't even think they need to give us like unique cards or like things that like give us sense like just spoil cards at like irregular intervals like leading up to the actual release like i feel like it's such a miss when i look at a game like flesh and blood that does an entire spoiler uh season in a week right because people become overwhelmed they become apathetic and they just look at it at the end of the week anyway and it's like with with larkana like we're all still we're hanging on like the edge right now for every card that comes out like aurora came out we're like oh my god right and it's just like we can i would just love to get that card drip like all the way up into release just so they can keep that hype train rolling yeah every 12 hours i think is the right way to do it no I, i'm like i'm not being i'm not being like silly here I'm, I'm literally saying like you'll get people on both sides of the planet and you'll have the people who wake up at like nine like at, you know at 9 a.m they get a card drop at 9 p.m they get a card drop the next day it's the same thing you wake up and you have something to look forward to at the end of the day i think that that's perfectly fair if there's 200 cards that are left to be spoiled and we're going to see the cards in august I mean, it's one, that kind one of day, baby, almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're almost at one a day. And like if that if they want to release the rule book first in a couple of months, like if they start feeding us like spoon feeding us cards in like mid to late April, like two a day until the release, I think is like the right schedule for that. Mm. All right. Well, that's going to that's going to uh, that's going to be it for episode two of Podicana here. We did talk about you know we talked about the the anatomy of the car we talked about the keywords the the interactions and broke down little tidbits such as no summoning sickness existing in the game and all these other little things pips being positive etc etc uh on our deep dive today so thank you all for listening we've had a great time lorcana please give us more stuff to uh <laughs> to talk about we would love to do it but until next time we'll see you in the next episode